Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Yo, I'm back to attack this verse. No relent when I quench this thirst. No repent when I press the corn. Slow ascent till the future's born. Cause we're growing important and we be flowing inordinately every day. Owning the moment in every way. Growing enrollment in every class. Touching the grass, living it up till the reverie pass. I'm hovering past my haters, stuttering laughs. Checking the papers, you want to debate us. More likely evade us, we're deadly invaders. Never evading, and I'm always be waiting for the rhyme. Don't you blink or you will miss though. Always evolving like the culture is. Peter Rizzo, my writing is lightning. That's why they call me the Bitcoin Viking. I always be striking the match, igniting and rap and keep it exciting. That's the story. We call for freedom cause we need it. Challenges meet them and we beat them. Got a hunger, need to feed it. And there isn't a matter a dissident rapper who could ever rattle me. So haters, keep your fallacies. I'll be at the galaxy. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. Peter Rizzo, editor of Bitcoin Magazine, is our guest. We're going to get into it deep with him on Bitcoin and crypto media, the landscape, how it's evolving. We're also going to talk at length with Pete about Bitcoin culture and its history, its present, its future. It's a fascinating conversation, if you're, especially if you're interested in the narratives that drive these communities. Of course, we'll also check with our good friend Bimnet BB from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets and macro. And before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Phineas, we're back from the break. We got one big month push to the end of the year. We've got some good guests lined up coming up on this show. This is a great episode with Pete, but... I have to ask, Phineas, um, did you see this story about a horse that was on an airplane between New York and Belgium, and they had to turn around because the horse got loose? Did you see that? I'm already thinking of the branding of this section. I think it's going to be like Alex and the Alex and the news, maybe like or or headlines with Alex. Yeah, these are the stories that don't rate for our actual content. But I have not heard this story. Please explain. I mean, I feel like the like service animal thing. It's gone a bit too far. All right, you don't need a horse. Yeah. on an airplane. <laughs> also, people game the system. They they get yeah. these things online. They put dogs in their, yeah. you know, the vests, and you know. I get it. Yeah. And, and you, you can't, I mean, look, I get it. A dog, if it's a little dog too. Don't get me wrong. If you really need it, I get it. But like, does anyone need like a service animal horse or like a mental health awareness snake? You know, come, also, we, come, also, come on. Who's responsible for policing that? Like, I, like, that's the thing. I, I think it's quite decentralized. I think that's how people are able to game it so well. <laughs> there is no like national like service. I'd actually have no idea maybe there is I don't know. decentralized everything I mean, decentralized I, service animals yeah I, and i don't just i don't want to be in an airplane and see a horse running up the aisle uh to the cockpit that seems pretty scary to me yeah i would agree so good job they turned around uh everyone was safe um let's get right into the show let's talk to bimnet as always bimnet welcome to galaxy brains thank you for having me um what's been going on in markets i mean i saw you know bitcoin after we did our last episode it it went down a little bit yeah but it's mostly Right back, right back in the high 37s. It was at 38 yesterday. Um, and then equity markets I saw are also performing well. What's going on? So you've had um, a continuation of the theme um, over the past couple of weeks with, you know, data deteriorating and, and dovish Fed speak. Yesterday really marked like a new kind of stage to it uh, when you had a, a relatively hawkish member of the Fed, Waller, uh, kind of come out more dovish than a lot of market participants were expecting. 
basically acknowledging that the fact that a lot of the data has turned and, and some of the forward-looking indicators are, are suggesting that you know we're, we're going to head to a softer patch of inflation and employment and things of that nature. And so um, you saw twos rally 15 basis points yesterday. The dollar aggressively sell off. We're talking, you know, euro broke through 110 cable, 127 dollar yen. I think overnight at least we touched 146 handle. So dollars sold off aggressively. U.S. fixed income went, you know, aggressively bid, and that's generally risk on. And so equities have been reacting pretty uh, well to that news. You know, S and P's flirting with 4600. You know, which is basically close to. All-time highs, not even year-to-date highs, guys. Like we're talking about, all-time highs are within sight for the S and P and the Nasdaq. You've seen a lot of, you know, highly shorted names and sort of stuff that's more closer to junk uh, or, or low-quality stuff do really well. Some mm-hmm. of it's a function of like a short squeeze. Um, but long story short, you know, when the Fed is pivoting like this, you know, the market's going to take it as a signal to buy risk assets. Yeah. Right. And that's what it's doing. And, you know, what's the risk asset? Every currency that isn't the dollar. Right. Russell stocks, meme stocks, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. And Mm -hmm. so folks feel like the Fed gave them a green light to buy risk. And I think that's spilled over into crypto as well. And that's why, you know, you you know, again, we're still flirting with new trend highs in, 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 in Bitcoin. Um, you know, also trading pretty healthily uh, mm-hmm. as well. And so, you know, I think you're just in December and the Fed's telling you that, you know, the, they see a soft landing ahead. Yeah, it's um, crazy. The So the pivot is on. It sounds it's like. on. However, the risks to, yes, to that that's what I was gonna get to. are that you've got a lot baked in, right? So by the January FOMC meeting of 2025, so it's just like a year and like a Two months, yeah. call it. Yeah. You've got 130 basis points of cuts, right? You've got, by May of next year, you've got a full, uh, the first 25 basis points right. priced in. So there's a lot of, like, easing that's priced into into the, the rate curve. What makes it so challenging is you don't know, like, the extent to which they'll cut when they do start cutting, right? Because right? if you're motivated enough to cut, the question's like, do you cut 50? Do you cut 100? Do you cut 150? Right. What do you do with the QT program that you have? And so it, it becomes a very hard thing to, to solve. And you just kind of have to think about like the distribution of outcomes. Right. Uh, but the risk is that the Fed sees the economy slowing, but doesn't necessarily feel the need to cut rates. Right. And that's where the market could get caught off sides a little bit. I see. And part of the thing, too, with hire for longer as an idea, which doesn't mean raise more, but it may mean stay high. For a longer period of time, if people start buying stocks and equities are at all-time highs or nearing it and things yeah. further out on the risk curve like crypto or meme stocks, whatever else, are doing well, people feel wealthier and yes. then they spend more, Correct. theoretically, and then inflation is stickier, right? Correct. It's this like push and pull exactly. we've talked about. So the, it, it's it's such an interesting position because they, they're acknowledging some softening that and they're signaling that that could lead to easing. Yes. But at the same time, they don't want to signal that too hard. They want to be hawkish also so that Correct. people, they're kind of like a mean parent who's like, don't go out and spend anything though, right? They got to like beat us but, down well, with language. You to spend a lot but, we, but we know you're going yeah. to, yeah. It's just such a tricky situation because it is hard. we've talked about that Volcker situation where they, they raised a bunch and then they cut a bunch, but then inflation roared back and they'd have raised like 20%. They don't want that to happen. 
Correct. And so it's it's a fine balance that the Fed needs to strike. And their other considerations are, you know, their credibility. Uh, many eyes, they're not that credible. But the, right. for them, it's still an important thing to of focus course. on. And so, yeah, it's it's tough. However, I would say that their concerns are, you know, not necessarily about the part of the economy that has a huge stock portfolio. Right. Right. Not necessarily the people that I mean, would they think going to feel richer? By, those by people asset are, are doing fine. That's a fair exactly, point. Yeah. Right. And so those people already have a huge glut of savings. Their consumption habits aren't really going to change that much. Are they really going to buy a new house right now? Like and so right, right. what you're mo- mo- mainly concerned about is, you know, the folks in the bottom quartile of the income distributions, the folks that uh, are having to pay student debt again, the credit card delinquencies that, that are picking up, the yep. auto delinquencies that are picking up. You know the folks at risk with you know automation moving in right at at the fringe parts of uh, of the labor market, um, and so that's kind of you know where I think the Fed's concern is is mainly coming from. In addition, like there's structural things that have changed that are now helping the Fed, right? So oils come off a lot, right. for example. Right. Which right? Just, I think you're going on like ten weeks in a row of gas price declines, and that for, trickles out throughout the economy. Correct. Like not all just the stuff that uses gasoline. To power it, but also all the products that are made from petroleum, right? Yeah, like everything, tons, tons yes. of stuff gets cheaper if oil is cheaper. And so, you know, and then also the, the supply chain stuff is eased like super meaningfully. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think there's a certain element of like, you know, the US consumer is always so strong. Like they just want to consume, consume, consume. Uh, but there is a limit to that, right? Like, like everybody that bought, furniture during the covid pandemic they already bought it they already bought it yeah you know and stuff like that were, so, that was a big trend right like mm-hmm. during covid like buying like stuff to upgrade your house because you were all yeah, stuck in it a, so everyone was but then, what, ordering, but then like, it would the take ship. like 16 months to arrive right <laughs> but 16 months later you have the couch do you need a new one now? no yeah right and yeah. so you know same thing with like durable goods you bought a new fridge like, so what's I, the, I forget but we're like the you know like um I don't want to name any specific companies, but like the male furniture companies that like whether it's like self-assembly, where did they rip during COVID? They must have, right? I'm forgetting now, but actually, it, yeah. honestly, they must well, have because if you're like we engaged, in you're like I need a new ottoman printing. And, and, it just didn't matter thing, what you and you can't go out, so it's yeah. like you're only ordering stuff on online, basically. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. I mean, I bought a new bed. During COVID, <laughs> I did. And those fancy sheets. That I do. I, did, yeah. I do. I have the, I do the, I'm telling you, if you're going to spend money on something, so, uh, you know, things that carry, and this is just a clear aside, but in my view, it's things that like you, your body is in, right? Your bed, your your furniture, your shoes should be comfortable. A t-shirt, I, I like to say, merely drapes upon your body, but your sneakers carry the full weight of your body, right? So they should be comfortable. Got it. As no, a, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's a little bit of an but aside. But looking, looking forward, um, yeah. we do get, like, a bunch of data um, shortly, yeah. right? So, do, you know, you get PCE, you get non-farm payroll soon, you've got Powell speaking, I, I believe, on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then you... And we have another FOMC before the end of the December year, right? December 15th. Okay, big you've day. got all, another ECB meeting as big well. Big day, Fed day. Bank of England meeting as well. Yep. Uh, and so there's a lot of like central bank and data in, in the next couple of weeks that might Did change. Did we get any data on um, like Thanksgiving and Black Friday and Cyber Monday yet? Have you seen anything? Yeah, no, about, I mean, was we, it we, strong? It was really strong, but it's really tough to say because like, like you don't get the. We, like we the actually, online sales look really good, but they grow every year. So yeah. it's like, did they grow because they grow every year? Or was or there a meaningful people, pop? Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. so, but yes, people spent. 
money a lot more uh, seems like more than they did last year which is always the trend way. theoretically right yeah yeah um but the nature of the spending i think is what's most important because you know th there's so many uh buy buy now pay later programs happening yeah. that and people buying stuff on credit um in general and so that's really where, where the focus is i mean I'll, I'll tell you like even when i order uh like food uh, they they have a, I know. a pay later section. Somebody now. said I saw a joke. Somebody was like, I just ordered like yeah. a Domino's pizza, and for fun, I decided to pay one dollar a month for twenty four months or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, so but they're, they're even offering that now, yeah, like for retail everything. everything. Yeah. I even noticed this on Apple Pay. Yes, exactly. It literally says pay like, later if you exactly. want. So you can pretty much do anything. Apple yep. will loan you money. Apparently, it's really crazy. Um, but at these high interest, we rates, love credit in this country, don't yeah, we? Yeah, it's gonna be an issue. We are at some a debt. Point. Yeah. It's in our DNA. Debt is in American but here's, DNA. But here's really what's happening. I mean, partially it's like the, the Fed, like, has binding constraints. Like, if we just kept jacking rates up, like, shit would definitely break. Yeah. I mean, when tens were approaching 5% and everybody was like, oh, my God, the fiscal path is on. I mean, it still is. Like, I know, but that really that made people really start to freak out about like, the fiscal. Ex yeah. Exactly. And so what did the Treasury do? The Treasury was like, oh, we're not coordinated or anything. We're, we're going to cut coupon issuance, though. <laughs> so people start uh, freaking out about whether or not we can well, spend this yeah, money. Well, yeah, yeah. It caused yeah. a rally in the, in the back It is end. funny because the Treasury's job is to spend money. That's their job primarily yeah. well, for the U.S. Also, government. It's it's also to manage the debt profile. Well, for sure, yeah. they have to get the money, which Correct. is the debt. But I mean, they, they you know admit. that that's they're the ones that's they're the the bank account for the U.S. government. Correct. And um, so, of course, if they start seeing, wait a sec, our issuance policy is resulting in strong pushback or calls for fiscal conservatism, or um, then maybe we should change that because <laughs> we'd prefer if they didn't come in yeah, and cut no, our money. I'm basically though. Here's the issue with all this stuff is. You got a bunch of people that basically only think a couple years forward, yeah. right? And there's no incentive. Like your senators are on six-year election cycles. That's, the, that's the best we've got in terms of longer-term incentives. I bet yeah. you they get elected and like two years in they start fundraising mm -hmm, again, mm -hmm. and like their voters aren't really asking them to come up with solutions no, I know. for where the economy. And you talked be 10 about this too. You've said this. There's no, and you don't get elected saying you're you're going to cut. Basically. Yeah, Cutting and it's also like okay, like. There's a ton of people under the age of 30, 35, right? They're not like the most vocal people about politics. But trust me, in 20 years from now, yeah. when it's like, wait, the, the federal, you know, we spent $2 trillion to just pay interest a year. Like, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Like, it, uh, it is a problem, though. Your point about, like, if you take two-year House of Representative term, terms, like— there's a the, you basically have to spend I forget there's simple math on this it changes all the time but it's like you know a congressman person has to raise like five grand a week like to yeah. have a chance at reelection and they have to start right away I don't know if it's five grand right the number but but like so literally like they're and, yeah. and you can pursue two primary strategies as a member of the house like a home office strategy which is where you're at home in, in your home state a lot meeting with lots of constituents and typically raising money from them or a more policy focused strategy where you are in Washington more of the time, maybe you're building your profile by working on high profile issues and maybe that's how you raise money, but that you neglect your, uh, your, your home state. And, and basically you have to decide and you have to be raising, always be raising. It's like always be selling. You gotta yeah. always be closing. You gotta be always only, be raising. Only Senator, not to give any endorsements, but the only Senator that's made like a lot of sense to me recently, 
uh, about this like fiscal issue and like acknowledging like this mismatch of incentives yeah. was, uh, was Mitt Romney. Like yeah. he gave like a speech about it. He's like, guys, like we, we got to address this stuff, but there's no capacity. to. <laughs> no. Um, you know, and then like Stanley Druckenmiller. Like, sure, sure. And the investor guys, community. They the investor know. community's acknowledged it. But um, uh, yeah, it's tricky. And then the last thing I want to le leave people with for sure is, uh, you know, there's the rational me, the mid curve me tells me that this is a market, in Bitcoin at least, that has a lot baked in in terms of expectations of an approval, right? Uh, but in terms of the pricing of like the actual flows, the subsequent flows, mm -hmm. it's it's nearly impossible to price that in, in full. Like the, the pathways that an ETF opens in terms of just f flows, yeah. like until you get those flows, it's right. going to be insanely difficult for this market to, to price in that kind of stuff yeah and so you know to borrow a phrase from another you know uh client of ours actually it's uh, by the rumor by the news yep uh bimnet abibi from galaxy trading my friend as always thanks for coming on galaxy brains let's go now to our guest pete rizzo editor of bitcoin magazine pete thank you so much for coming on galaxy brains love to be here i've, I've wanted to have pete on for a while um, he's been covering Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, he was previously the editor at Coindesk. Um, when, how long have you been actually covering Bitcoin? Yeah, great question. I uh, had my 10-year anniversary uh, earlier this summer. Uh, my first Bitcoin article, I think, went out in July of 2013. Uh, probably was following the space for a few months before that. But uh, yeah, I've been a Bitcoin journalist officially now for 10 years. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a, an accolade, but <laughs> I've certainly been doing it for a long time. And uh you know, the space has evolved tremendously, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, my initial take, uh, I'll, I'll stand by it was, you know, kind of an optimistic look about people kind of using this new, uh, crazy internet currency, uh, to do different things. Like I interviewed like a comedian who had like saved money and like, had, you know, got a bunch of money off Bitcoin. There was like, I think a local honey producer who was selling it. Right. So like just commerce coming together and, uh, yeah, looking back on it, reflecting it, I think I was like, happy that I didn't have like such a negative view on it. Like that's something I think I can stand by, but I don't think I really understood Bitcoin at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it was, I didn't either. I, I got interested in Bitcoin sometime in 2013 also and and really just thought it was cool. I was involved in like Tor. I was running a Tor exit node. I was like on IRC. Mm. I was like, I, I worked in forensic investigation at the time. So I was a little bit of like a hacker. Okay. And um, I was a much better trader of Bitcoin because I didn't really understand it or care, right? I just thought it was cool. And then, you know, I sold a bunch of Bitcoin back then. <laughs> and then when I really got working on it full time, I was like, wait a second. Oh, my gosh. Like, I should never have done that. And now yeah. I but it's hard. It, Rewind. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> um, I, one of the things I want to talk to Pete about, Pete, you wrote an article for Forbes last year. Um, and hold on. I've got it right here. Bitcoin at 2140 um, off differing views on the future of the future of money which I recommend everyone read. And I want to ask you about this. The reason I love this piece so much is that it's a good, it served as a really good mental model for understanding sort of Bitcoin culture and the views on what Bitcoin is, what makes it important. So you, just very high level, you, you postulated that in your view, there were th sort of three camps. There were the monetary maximalists who believe that Bitcoin's is primarily used for, but also should primarily be thought of as a monetary network. Um, uh -huh, there are the... Yep. Yeah, there are the platform maximalists who think Bitcoin should be thought of as a technology platform, theoretically, upon which to build applications and stuff like that. And then there were the network maximalists who say the best way to think about Bitcoin is as a peer-to-peer -peer network, right? And um, uh -huh. th Does that still 
is that still true? Is that still your belief of the three camps as they exist? Before we, then I want to talk about whether there's changes in the balance of power. You said in the story quite clearly the, the piece that the for the last few years at least the monetary maximalists are sort of in charge of the dominant Bitcoin narrative. Yeah, they've been the dominant force. Yeah, I can jump in there. So I think um, you know one Bitcoin is a technology, but two, it's very obvious that Bitcoin has a culture, and I think there hasn't really been enough research or analytical work on how that culture functions. So this was essentially an attempt at that, right? So essentially, I was trying to look at Bitcoin, uh, you know, as a sociological movement, right? You can kind of class certain people as having certain attitudes towards things. And, you know, why is that a framework that's helpful? Well, Bitcoin is a technology, right? And it's improving, but I don't think that it has essentially reached its goal, right? You can say that most of the participants within the Bitcoin ecosystem are trying to improve it in some way or think that it needs to grow or extend in other ways, right? So that's where you get into like, what is the Bitcoin culture? Why do we have it? And how does it function? Uh, so this was an attempt to clarify that. And essentially, it created three buckets. And it, and it used, um, you know, what you were saying, this 2140 lens. So why 2140, right? So at some point, all the Bitcoin will be mined. And uh, there's this question of how the network will continue to operate under fundamentally different assumptions than it op uh, operates today, right? And this is a long-standing Bitcoin conversation with a lot of history and lineage going all the way back to Satoshi. But essentially, you know, we know that the Bitcoin network will operate differently in the future. And we, as participants of the network, are building towards that. And there's different attitudes. So essentially, this, as you said, sorted into three attitudes. And you know, I think it was a, an interesting lens to examine this because, you know, um, as you said, I think certain cultures uh, within Bitcoin, you know, as you get these sort of hype cycles, uh, my recent thinking on this, maybe to not to kind of deviate too much, but is that essentially, you know, these are the sociologies are kind of tied to market cycles, which is essentially, you know, when we have a big run up in the Bitcoin price, we need to explain this to outsiders, right? So like we, the Bitcoin culture, needs to explain, like, why is Bitcoin going up? Why are more people interested in it? And usually that is that a certain culture like kind of comes to the fore. And, you know, over the last cycle, really, I think monetary maximalism was the big culture. So if you onboarded into Bitcoin from 2020 to 2021, it's likely that the version of Bitcoin you know is essentially, you know, Bitcoin is money. It's the best money that's ever existed. Uh, Bitcoin is the only decentralized cryptocurrency. And it's only essentially its decentralization is tied in some way to this monetary policy that no one can change, right? Uh, but that is a very distinctive view, and that view has a lot of challenges from other people within Bitcoin who agree with a lot of it, but also disagree with some things, right? So uh, the alternative view would be, I think, the, a, a group that's kind of coming to the fore now, which is essentially the platform maximalists, right? People who want to build stuff on Bitcoin, uh, use money for different types of applications, uh, and look to what's going on in other cryptocurrencies like stablecoins or DeFi or NFTs and see market activity that they believe should or has to come back to Bitcoin. There's there's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, but yeah, essentially, um, you know, this framework was an attempt to kind of, you know, outline where are we going, right? Because I do think that Bitcoin's culture tends to evolve. And I think that the toughest time to be a Bitcoiner is like your first cycle within Bitcoin, because you tend to get exposed and onboarded to Bitcoin through a very specific culture. And then what you find is because we don't understand Bitcoin completely yet, uh, the culture tends to shift and change, and it tends to move towards questions that are unresolved, right? So my hypothesis back then was essentially, you know, we had a dominant culture. That culture became dominant because it offered certain answers to questions. Uh, and in this case, I think the monetary maximalists offered the easiest explanation for why Bitcoin and not crypto. That's essentially what they were able to offer. But there were kind of cracks in that ideology or essentially like there was some data that didn't quite compute, right? So essentially, you know, we did see the rise in other cryptocurrency markets of 
stable coins, DeFi, uh, NFTs, markets that now have been around for like 10 years and seem to have some degree of staying power. And so I think now you're sort of, the Bitcoin movement seems like it wants to integrate some new form of information, right? There's like a hunger within the culture to explore some of these things that before were kind of off limits or were viewed as taboo. Um, so yeah, again, I think the framework was it tried to capture at the time or what my, I thought the snapshot of the culture was. Uh, tried to kind of frame kind of the different technological viewpoints of those cultures. And I think it's interesting now, as you said, because a year later, those cultures are in a very different vantage point. Some are ascendant, some are descendant, and we have a very different picture of what Bitcoin looks like. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it, it is much different than it was even a year ago. And I think part of that is the market is down. People want new answers for things. But fundamentally, like we have to continue exploring and developing Bitcoin, and we don't have all the answers yet. I think it's an excellent framework. I think about it. I, I use it as part of my mental model a lot. And You're, my, you're the only fan of that article. <laughs> is that true? Did everyone else Of all the Forbes articles I think I ever wrote, I think that is like the least viewed. Are you serious? I, I think that's one of my... That's yeah, def- like I've read a lot. Yeah, I've read a lot of your work over the years. And that's, I think, my favorite piece. And I actually, I, I think it's the most cited. Like people come up and talk to me about it the most. But yeah, I think it's like from an actual raw analyst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, there was there. one you must have seen the one that um, Nick Carter and I think at the time Hasu wrote called "Visions of Bitcoin" from like 2018, mm. which was a similar yeah. effort. They actually came up with a um, like 100% stacked area chart. You know, like a market share mm-hmm. chart of the narratives in Bitcoin over time. Mm. It's like really interesting too. Yeah, I have seen that one. I, I love this question because I think it does change a lot. I think it's also really great. And, you know, one of the things I tell, for example, researchers on my team at Galaxy, when they join, if if they've entered crypto, which many of them have, you know, I'm older than a lot of them, you know, later than I did, you know, I say, look, maybe they came in because they liked NFTs or DeFi or whatever else. Not everyone comes through the same path these days. There's a lot happening in the cryptocurrency world. But I say, like, you really should go back and read, like, the certainly like the complete Nakamoto or whatever that they have on uh, Nakamoto Institute. You should go and read some of the old Bitcoin talk forums because like y- you need to understand that like this happens sometimes when they say, so, hey, you know what we really, we should do on a blockchain. I'm like, yo, like how Finney suggested that already. <laughs> like you should go back and see the lineage. Yeah, I like to say that uh, the whole crypto industry is essentially like a seeing eye picture. And like the longer you've been there, like the more chance that you see like the picture within. But like the people who are new just see like straight noise. Like right. they, they keep telling you that they understand the picture, but they don't. They don't have enough context. Uh, and one of the things that you're alluding to that I think is very true is that and this is like kind of been the focal point of my work or like why I work on Bitcoin history. Like people are like, why would you, you know, do such a thing? I think that we have a tremendous like brain drain and sort of this like returnal summer that happens where every crypto market uh, explosion that happens, like again in Bitcoin and without, uh, you have this tremendous like recycling of, of new ideas, right? But at the at the root of it, there are these things that are actually like core to kind of the problems that like everybody is working on. And I actually see the Bitcoin and crypto markets as being fundamentally is pretty similar. I actually view the cryptocurrency markets as like an offshoot of Bitcoin, right? Essentially, in order for them to have been created, people joined Bitcoin and then they left for some reason. So that makes them sociologically attached to Bitcoin in some way, right? So what, yeah, they're they're part of the Bitcoin lineage, basically. They are. And I think this is really important to understand, right? So as a journalist in the space, I'm often kind of forced to like, you know, kind of talk about my position as also a Bitcoin maximalist and where that comes from, right? And I think part of it is that I did see that happen firsthand, right? In the beginning, it was really just Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin was the kind of have had pure mass in terms of like market share and, and ideology from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. This was kind of the thing. And then I did see the emergent kind of like crypto offshoot culture uh, form. And I think right now within Bitcoin, you know, to kind of really zoom out, it's like I think we essentially have 
you know, this question of what is Bitcoin? And there are three sociologies with some answer to that question, right? Bitcoin, our thesis, if, as if you're a maximalist, is that Bitcoin is the full and complete instantiation of that idea. We don't need any other cryptocurrencies, right? Satoshi invented Bitcoin. We might have to improve it for all intents and purposes. Like, that is the invention. You have the crypto crowd, which essentially attempts to, attempts to kind of position Bitcoin as like limited or like it needs to be extended or this is a revolution that needs to be continued in other ways. And that's their justification. And then you have the no coiners, who are the last group who just reject that any of this is valuable. And I think you actually have to step that far out to really see that there's sort of like three main cultures, I would say. Why are they different cultures? Because they have different answers to a fundamental question. And then they have they establish a worldview based on that question, which is what is Bitcoin? What did Satoshi actually accomplish? And then within the Bitcoin group, there are even sub-splinters of that, oh, yeah. which is essentially like, because we know that Bitcoin needs to succeed in the future, it needs to be cryptographically secure, we want it to scale to 8 billion users, or most people you know, have that idea, uh, there are different sociologies within Bitcoin. So it's, it's actually interesting that, you know, from like a cultural and sociological perspective, I think you, you can zoom all the way out. I think that's, that's the all the way out, the 10,000 foot view of essentially Bitcoin, crypto, no coin, fiat land, <laughs> you know, and then even within Bitcoin, you know, there are fissures, fissures and factions. And I think some of those, you know, again, some of these cultures like kind of relate. I have an unpublished article that attempts to kind of like coagulate these theories again like i don't know who's interested in this stuff so i like this stuff a lot this is the, i <laughs> i love the i think also to be clear i think in bitcoin and crypto markets generally there's such a narrative driven market still even for reasons as simple as it's hard to understand how to invest fun on a fundamental basis well i'll give you the one that i think i spend the most time on and that most relates to i think what you want to talk about with journalism uh, stuff is that i think the biggest ideology is crypto agnosticism and i think the problem is that it's most often misidentified as not being an ideology and i, I this is actually something that being in journalism and then coming to be having like a like a market viewpoint i had to reckon with and i think it's essentially that you know, the crypto media as it exists and the crypto, even the investment industry as it exists, you know, it has it has to take this like sort of objective viewpoints. Right. And, it, and, and what it settles on is this idea that essentially like all crypto assets are like stocks. There's not really a material difference between them and that anyone who has like a specific ideology uh, about them, like isn't a good faith market participant. Right. Like there's someone with like a skewed sort of worldview. And I think the problem with that is it disregards like a lot of actual data, which is that some of these systems are better or worse for users. Uh, and that was something that I had to really like think about a lot as a journalist early on, because journalists, you know, of jobs that are ideological, the journal, the job of journalism is pretty ideological. I mean, there's even this kind of thing when you go to journalism school where it's like, you know, your, your job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, right? That's like one of the core tenets, right? You're supposed to essentially try to kind of restore order or, or some sense of justice to the world. That's like why people get, get into journalism is there's that morality of that calling. And you, you can get into like all the all the stuff around that. But I introduced that because I think, you know, the, the consumer harm standpoint is something that I think if there's something that unites journalists, they should broadly be against stuff that causes consumer harm and they should be for stuff that's better for people. Which is, you know, if you get into like sort of <clears throat> liberal Western U.S. world journalism, that, that's kind of why it exists, Right. But then their lens on the Bitcoin crypto industry tends to either fall into sort of no-coinerism, like they either just reject that there's a meaningful invention here, or to the extent that they buy into the market, they're essentially, again, this crypto agnosticism idea, which is that everything is kind of equal. These things are all competing. Their value propositions are just purely defined by their founders, and the market will decide. And I think that's a very problematic viewpoint. And I think part of my kind of movement over to the Bitcoin side 
was to push back against that, you know, to basically say, like, I don't actually think that is very correct. Uh, and I think we actually should be moving more to a market where there's more thesis-based uh, cryptocurrency journalism, because I think that is actually more healthy. So with the Bitcoin Magazine perspective, it's, you know, our thesis is a Bitcoin-only, Bitcoin maximalist perspective. And I think that's useful because you as a market participant can read that information. And maybe you know that it's coming from a certain ideological bent, uh, but it's not trying to be something that this other form of journalism in the space, which I think we have way too much of, is where it's like, you know, they're out to cover doge ordinals because there's money, like somebody made $25 million on a cat drawing or something, right? Like there's nothing, <laughs> because I think that part of the industry has sort of tried to get to this general markets perspective. They like they really want to treat the cryptocurrency sector as a mature market. And I, and I just wholeheartedly say to them all the time that like, based on where this technology is, like that just seems very untrue. Because if you spend any time kind of looking at the underlying technology and where the theses are and how we're moving, I still think it's very early days in the whole sector, right? I was on a panel in, in Logano, it was called like Bits versus Sats, dumb argument. But, you know, essentially one of the things that I said was it's interesting to think like, what if Satoshi had never made one Bitcoin unit, right? What if the only unit was a Satoshi? Bitcoin would still have never reached one cent parity 14 years later. And it's very likely that media coverage of Bitcoin would better reflect, I think, the actual state of the technology, right? If Bitcoin was still less than a cent, most of the world wouldn't care. Maybe you and I would even be here. It's so interesting, that pure unit bias, right? Yeah, because of unit bias, right. Uh, but I think that unit bias has driven a lot more coverage and attention to a technology that's like still fundamentally like pretty rudimentary, right? I mean, if you look at the history of money, I mean, this is something that the maximalists kind of say all the time, but it's like, you know, we're very early in terms of like even knowing what the stuff is. And then, you know, once you're in kind of like the DeFi land of like tokenized everything, multiple layers, like nobody even knows, like even the smartest people, like you just, you can't, we can't know what the hell you're talking, like nobody knows. Like right. maybe it's you very early, very theory. young, very nascent. Yeah. And so you, your point though, too, is that there's like a relativism that the journalists end up playing with. They try to say, okay, if we're going to cover well, they try the not space, to have an opinion, they try, right, which, they try which to leads to them counting sort of everything as equal. Right. And when you're saying it fundamentally isn't, which is in itself an opinion. And I think the argument there is that is a highly problematic opinion because it's, uh, you end up, uh, you know, supporting like technologies that ultimately aren't good for the user. So like the idea was like, as a user who holds money in Bitcoin, you have a higher degree of assurances as a user than someone on other cryptocurrencies. And that that's undeniably true merely from the fact that, you know, how Bitcoin launched, how it currently operates, the, and the influence of certain developer teams like within the Bitcoin framework. Undeniably true that, that that is the case, I would argue. But again, like the idea here is that like their whole goal is to sort of obfuscate that question or not even address it uh, because essentially they want to kind of cover the market activity because that's what users are interested in. So they end up sort of just playing into the investment mania that has sort of defined these cryptocurrency bubbles. So I, to me, I think the, the crypto media, you know, and again, early on, it was a lot more of a technology thing, right? Like Coindesk, when it originally started, was a technology publication, right? We were a lot more like an early wired than I think what you have today where, you know, the block works and the block and, and Coindesk, uh, you know, they attempt to kind of position themselves as like, they're the, covering the new market. They're the new market journalists. And, you know, if you're only smart enough and if you only have the right coins and if it's just, you know, you had to get in the right coins at the right time, the right knowledge, you know, you could have won big, right? That's the whole 
thing that like whether they know it or not, they're participating in this whole system, right? And I think that is the system that's problematic. Yeah, they would probably argue that they're not. You're saying it's an inevitable consequence of their style of coverage, which is really interesting. Yeah, they feed into this idea, which is that, you know, the coin market capization of, you know, cryptocurrency, which is, and I, cause, cause I think they don't realize that pre 2017, that that wasn't, that wasn't an aspect of the industry at all, right? There wasn't right. this idea uh, that, you know, there was a market that all of these technologies were good and the market was going to be this like, benevolent or uh, not benevolent, but like, you know, this very uh, sophisticated arbiter of like innovation that like, you know, the average person's like, what do they know about computer science? And the answer is they right. don't. Right. <laughs> so like, right, right. why? what is the average person with their $5? How are they helping us adjudicate matters in computer science by going 50x long on Dogecoin on BitMEX? They're, the answer is they're not, right? They're not, <laughs> they're, they're not, that is not what they're doing. Right. Uh, and if you accept that that is not what they're doing, then you have to sort of question why you're involved in a system that like sort of, you know, positions that as like logical activity. Pete, I want to ask you about um, Coindesk, uh, the acquisition by the cryptocurrency exchange Bullish, uh, who's at Yan at Blockworks had argued that this was a negative for the space because now you have, you know, like a conflicted exchange owning a journalism outlet. But in, in you know, historically speaking, right, Coindesk was also owned by DCG and it was quite good at maintaining that journalistic barrier but in general what are your so so i don't think it's a foregone conclusion that there's that it's a bad transaction at all but what are your thoughts on it as a you know former editor at coindesk yeah good question i mean i think that editorial independence and freedom is something that you're always fighting for no matter who is in charge of your organization right so this just gets into like regular journalism funding as, as being a problem you know just because keep in mind like in dow jones owns the wall street journal right like it's not right. like this yeah. can't happen yeah there's you know and then you have jeff bezos who owns the washington post and you know there's always somebody with some interest who runs it right i think yeah. i think coin has done a great job historically you know pushing back against that we saw the reporting they did about dcg when dcg was the owner um, you know, I think more what I think the conflict really does become when you have these different owners is really on the business model side, because again, like journalism is such a problematic business model where, you know, if you look at most of the major journalism outlets, most of them are philanthropically run, right? They're run at a loss because people think it's a greater good in order for this journalism to exist. And that, that was certainly true under the GCG era. Um, you know, I think that, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I was really sort of against that, right? I always thought that the uh, crypto industry participants should strive to be kind of more free market. They should be kind of run for profit. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that, but one of them, it makes them more market savvy. They have to actually interact with it. And I think that kind of goes to what I was saying before about this kind of agnosticism that kind of exists in crypto media. And I think part of it is that they're isolated from it, right? Especially the uh, the ones that are run sort of more, you know, kind of with a, big set of money that they don't really have to actually acquire from the market is that, you know, they're not really accountable to the market in the same way, right? They can kind of just operate sort of outside of it. And then you get the point where, you know, if, you know, they have the same situation now where it's like, you know, DCG was the sole owner. DCG went under. I won't tell you how many people told me that would never happen. <laughs> uh, but, you know, again, I think I thought the odds were always pretty high, right? 99% of startups fail. There was no reason that DCG was, you know, somehow immune from that. Bullish is kind of the same, right? It's a for-profit startup. Can have the same issues. Um, you know, I think the uh, the other TLDR is just that Coindesk isn't you know as systematically important as it used to be, right? During the bear market of 2014-15, it really was the only game in town, kind of news and information. And you know, now we really do have Blockworks and the Block and a lot of other for-profit uh, Bitcoin media and crypto media that are good. I think we really just should, do need to move more towards thesis-driven 
stuff, though, because yep. I do think that the idea that these crypto journalists can kind of be agnostic or objective. I just don't know how you look at the failures of like FTX and then what happened with Luna and not say that like, hey, we need to like double down and actually, you know, have informed kind of, you know, journalism happening in the space and that journalism happening at the technology layer, not the markets layer, because the markets layer, it isn't as interesting, right? Like uh, if you covered the Dogecoin, you know, run up. How do you feel about that? Was that something that, you, you know, it was worth your time and energy to, to cover? Was that worthwhile, right? Like, um, I don't know. I think that the crypto media really does have to grapple with this idea that, you know, to an extent, they are they are, they are capable of pushing back on like, these market actors, right? Somebody could have always done due diligence on FTX. That was always possible. Um, you know, we just didn't see that happen uh, until, you know, much later in the game. So I don't know. I mean, I think it'll be interesting. Obviously, you know, they have a great team there. Uh, I think people should try to hold them accountable. And if there are irregularities, point that out. But, you know, I think that uh, it's great that they'll continue. Um, you know, I think it says a lot more about DCG's market position than anything else. And yeah. just the extreme need there for, you know, capital. Pete, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the platform maximalist cohort, because you mentioned when you were giving some of the overview that there were perhaps some that are ascendant, some that are descendant, et cetera. And I think it's very clear. I've argued, particularly since the, I guess, invention, uh, discovery of ordinals, I'm more of a half invention, half discovery, the technology, right? So when Casey Rotomore released the Ord client, right, which was, I guess, technically mid-December of last year, but really January. It, it, so we've seen an explosion of activity we hadn't seen in Bitcoin, at least in years, I would say, right? So primarily... Uh, digital collectibles yeah, what's of some happening type. There? <laughs> yeah, and, and and some tokens, very inefficient standards for tokens like BRC20. But yeah. nonetheless, they're driving significant volume. And you're also now seeing multiple teams that are planning to build sovereign rollups on Bitcoin. I know of at least two, right? There's Taproot Wizards slash Kazar Labs. And then there's Chainway that are both in the market and planning to launch rollups. There's discussion paulo uh from tether yeah, has said that he prefers also alive, yeah. right exactly and rg he's, he's still saying rgb is the best way to do tokens you got taproot assets protocol now um or soon right so uh -huh. i'm not crazy when i look at it and see that now i know there's a lot of pushback to this part of the culture also from the monetary maximalist wing of the party but it is ascendant is it not it's definitely ascendant i think the question then is like you have to kind of reckon of like what is its motivation and, and what it's is its attempt um and i think that there's different classifications of that so you know i think i try to be a little bit more neutral in this uh, argument where essentially like i actually think that it's good for bitcoin that we have both of these camps and then i'll kind of backtrack and say how i how i got to that perspective but you know essentially i think that from the uh kind of ordinals wing these tend to be more people coming at this from the platform maximalist perspective they, they tend to have this view that you know in order for bitcoin to be cryptographically secure in the future we the bitcoin users need to create a fee economy and demand for bitcoin uh and then they seem to be of the per persuasion that any means necessary of achieving that uh, is good. So let's just kind of put that in a box. That 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 I think is what they are saying, right? Like, and I think you can look at the kind of most extreme versions of that to so the least extreme versions. That's essentially their claim. Their claim is essentially, you know, we know that Bitcoin is going to be different in the future. We know that we need to generate this fee revenue, or or Bitcoin, the economy needs to generate a certain amount of fee revenue, or be cryptographically secure. That's kind of claim one. There actually are very good counter arguments on the monetary maximalist side of why that's correct, but that is their first claim. And their second claim then is that because they think that is true, 
they think that any by any means of establishing a fee market in the Bitcoin economy is good. And so they see themselves as kind of like morally aligned to Bitcoin on those two uh, points. And then I think, you know, again, you can debate both sides of it, but they're fundamentally making both those claims. Uh, I don't think they're very interested in the counter arguments, right? And the counter arguments would be essentially like, well, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, we're doing on ordinals now is essentially not real value or not a real economy and just kind of even spam, they might say. Uh, the spam argument I have a lot more of a problem with because I think that's used to kind of just miss like a much more nuanced conversation, which is I think they're actually arguing those two points and the right. monetary maximalists, I think, need to argue back on those two points, but sort of, sort of haven't done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I think that, um, you know, because they think this any means necessary approach is correct and good, they therefore are able to reconcile things that you know, from a network perspective, maybe aren't that great. So a good example would be, you know, I, I wrote a separate article for Bitcoin Magazine that was, was called How to Be a Bitcoin Maximalist. And it ultimately like kind of uh, outlined kind of like eight or nine ways, things that you could do to be more of a Bitcoin maximalist. And I think the most interesting one is that the number one kind of tenant of Bitcoin maximalism is that we as Bitcoin maximalists want to ensure the working of the Bitcoin software in perpetuity, right? That, that's kind of our foremost goal. Uh, and, you know, I think the ordinals kind of group puts a little bit of pressure on that because essentially they're, you know, they're saying that things like, okay, if somebody pays for a four megabyte block and then displaces economic activity because, you know, they're filling that full block and you have to then, you know, forever carry this picture of this, you know, (laughs) whale or frog or whatever, um, you know, that is objectively you doing something that's not maybe great for the network other than using kind of the defense points that you're, you would have to argue. Um, and then maybe we should discourage that, right? Because ultimately our long-term goal is we want Bitcoin to succeed, right? So everybody is kind of arguing from the same framework, but then they have different uh, reasons. But yeah, I think that, um, yeah, it is certainly ascendant uh, to your points. And I think that it is ascendant because there was a certain, I think, like moralism that came with Bitcoin monetary maximalism, which is essentially that, you know, in order to argue why these things aren't good, you have to sort of argue in ways that kind of make it seem like you're limiting people's freedoms, right? Or you're trying to tell people they shouldn't or can't do things. And there's a certain wing of the Bitcoin culture that's just very averse to that. Uh, and just says like, no, I can do that. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm going to, you know, if I want to buy this picture of a frog, <laughs> you know, I'm going to spend my money on it because I think it's good for Bitcoin. I'm going to do that, right? So I think you have this interesting kind of culture war playing out. But I think the the fissure line, if you move away from the technology, just to kind of like maybe kind of take it a little bit, uh, you know, out of that lens, is that the real question I think that these two camps are fighting about now is, should Bitcoin compete with the cryptocurrency economy? Should Bitcoin as a platform, protocol, whatever, actively compete for use cases against other cryptocurrencies? Right. Now, the the... Ordinals group, the more platform maximalist people, they're undeniably pro this position. They want to go to war with the cryptocurrency sector. They want to destroy Ethereum and they want to take use cases away from it. They want to take stable coins. They want to take NFTs and they want to take DeFi. They want to take use cases that have been established on other chains and bring them back to Bitcoin because they think that is better for Bitcoin and better for users. The monetary maximalist side, I think, walked themselves a little bit in the corner. Because, um, you know, from that positioning, they sort of deny that the cryptocurrency markets exist or are valuable at all. Yeah. And so because they deny that they're valuable at all, they essentially have to reject the idea that you would even compete for markets, right? So like the the ordinals people kind of have this idea that we were going to outcompete 
the other cryptocurrencies and take these markets. And then the maximal, monetary maximalist view is like, these markets are crap. And like, we don't even want, like, we're, you, there's no reason that you should ever want to do that. This is where they start saying like Bitcoin, not crypto. And you're saying the platform maximalists are more Bitcoin versus crypto, right? Whereas the a dominant, a, a, I think a, a you, large you can even go they, lighter they, than that. Yeah. I think their point is that Bitcoin is crypto, yeah. and that all the things that you can do within the cryptocurrency world, you can do on Bitcoin. And, and this I was an old that, view, right? This is another cyclical thing here because this used to literally be said back on the Bitcoin talk forums that like altcoins were test nets for Bitcoin. That theoretically, why we didn't want to add it to Bitcoin at that time, if something was proposed, was well, maybe we should test it first on another chain, and if it's really good, maybe one day it'll be incorporated. Yes. And I think that, you know, there's a criticism I have of the uh, maximalist uh, kind of wing is that a, a lot of them actually do have very valuable expertise. Like, so, you know, you take somebody like I did a, a you know, a fireside at uh, Bitcoin Amsterdam with Giacomo Zucco, who's somebody who's like been a Bitcoin builder for 10 years, worked with a lot of different technologies, you know, built RGB, which is literally a token standard. Uh, and it's, you know, he doesn't like ordinals and thinks that we should do something else. I think it should always be okay within Bitcoin for us to reject whether some, protocol has met our standard, right? And a great example would be like wrapped Bitcoin. I think the Bitcoin culture has roundly sort of rejected the idea that wrapped Bitcoin is a part of the ecosystem. We just largely don't care. Uh, and we've sort of decided that that doesn't meet our bar for innovation. We don't consider that an innovation. I think the interesting thing about ordinals, though, is that I think that it does. I think objectively, from the, the framework of the people who are in the NFT market, Ordinals is a much better protocol for them to be doing what they're doing than the things that they have on Ethereum and other places. And I'll give you a few reasons why. So, you know, one of them is that, um, you know, the problem that the NFT sector really has right now is like their projects are just bleeding out. They just, there's no actual value to the random arbitrary data they're storing on IPFS, and that has no actual relation to Ethereum. So when these markets really deteriorate, they just come apart. And I think the interesting thing that Casey Rodemar was able to do is that he was able to actually tie with ordinals the value of a Bitcoin more empirically to the actual NFT. And there's a few reasons for that. In order for you to have an ordinal on the ordinals protocol, you have to own a Satoshi. And that Satoshi is actual Bitcoin, right? And not only that, but that Satoshi could have other properties. It can be rarer than other Bitcoins. So you actually have this kind of component where if you look at kind of what people are doing in ordinals, they're launching projects that, you know, are... Uh, you know, not only being minted on actual Bitcoin and thus will always have the value of that Bitcoin, even if Bitcoin goes up over time, uh, but there's even like, you know, whole projects being minted out on uncommon sets. And what are uncommon sets? Well, they're the first Satoshi of every Bitcoin block. So it's something that will never go away, will likely only continue to get more rare as people hoard these kind of things. So now you're looking at an NFT ecosystem where like, again, from a user perspective, if someone is going to buy NFTs, would you rather them buy NFTs in this ecosystem where it's the data is on chain, stored by the Bitcoin consensus, not on IPFS? It's tied intrinsically to the value of an actual Bitcoin. So, you know, at the worst, at the end of the day, you have 10,000 Satoshis. You know, maybe right. you can pass that on your, your forebears if your art project doesn't uh, turn out. <laughs> and then because of the rarity factors of Ordinals' protocol, there's weird gamification ways for the projects to just be more intrinsically tied to Bitcoin, right, as things get more rare, right? So there's, there's more, a little bit more of a connection. Again, like Luke Jr. would sort of dismiss all this as stuff that isn't intrinsically to do with Bitcoin. Uh, but it's enough, right? Like you really see these things start multiplying. Like projects look for rare sats, the rare sats gain value because they look for them, they mint on them, those projects gain value. There's a lot more of a kind of combustion of economic factors that you just purely just never saw in the NFT ecosystem. 
So, you know, I think because of that, um, yeah, I think some of the stuff, you know, is just not going to go away. Uh, and, you know, because there are users to win from these other networks, um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, the people who, who have this idea that we can take markets away from other, uh, you know, cryptocurrency ecosystems, I'm sort of from the standpoint of like Godspeed, like for me as a Bitcoin holder, that just makes my Bitcoin more valuable. So, yeah. you know, from my standpoint, I often say to the people who are trying to kind of force me into one of the cultures, uh, why shouldn't I have two cultures that are competing for my attention or my belief? That's actually better for me that you're both advancing Bitcoin in your own ways. Uh, and, you know, people try to like kind of pin me down on, on one side or the other. It's like, uh, you know, maybe maybe the actual, this is a sign of Bitcoin's maturity, is that we actually just have competing cultures. Right. And those competing cultures are both making val- Bitcoin more valuable in their own ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, is one of them right or wrong? It's like, do they have to be? Because there's no fundamental kind of like existential question that they're really debating about other than this fee, you know, issue, which, you know, we've got a hundred years, you know, there's, we've got, yeah. Bitcoin's going to continue to be mined until 2140. So yeah, I think the likely scenario is you end up with multiple competing factions within Bitcoin. I think that's a net positive. Um, look, do I think there's going to be a lot of like weird trash that like comes out of the ordinal movement as like we build more protocols and experiment with, Oh, for sure. Like you're just at the tip of the iceberg of like how much weird nonsensical stuff is going to happen because of that. But I can't stop that. You can't stop that. These are just economic forces at work. I mean, uh, you know, how many how many more chains are people going to launch before they start being interested in building these things on Bitcoin, which they know will last forever? It doesn't take a lot for you to realize that, you know, some of these people who like got burned on Solana because they loved Sam Bankman fried and then he left or you know, they're working on a chain that maybe doesn't even exist anymore you know, before they start moving over to Bitcoin and like giving it serious, serious consideration. So, yeah, I, I see that as part of the ecosystem is just that's not going to stop. You're yeah. in the early innings. This yeah. is compound and DeFi summer. If you want a, a crypto degen analogy, this is the, the shot that went up. And yeah, it's going to be bubbly, just like DeFi summer was, where sometimes it's going to whittle down to nothing and you're going to be like, oh, what happened to that thing? Is it, is it gone? <laughs> and then it's going to come back. You're going to get the next wave of yam farming or like whatever. Oh, man. And it's going to be fits and starts. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think you're going to, it's going to be jerky, you know? For sure. And I think, um, you know, I love the point you make that one of the things that they clearly agree on is that Bitcoin should be competing with the other, for the other use cases. That is very clear. When you look at some, for example, these teams that are trying to build sovereign rollups, um, we can't actually tie today uh, rollup sequencer behavior to Bitcoin consensus without a, a hard fork. Yeah. So you wouldn't be able to like slash, for example, um, the roll-up stakers, but you can do a pretty good peg in and peg out, or at least about as trustworthy as all the other bridges across networks in crypto is my point. I'm sort of like, I, I take a standpoint on this with like BitVM, right? Like yeah. you remember the BitVM proposal that came out? Yeah, 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 How many thousands of developers looked at Bitcoin and then thought it could never do this type of con- smart contract? Seriously, like I know. 12 and then they came up with it. people launch other chains. Right. So when people sort of ask me, it's like, why do you want to be long Bitcoin? Well, it's like, look at this thing where it's like it took 12 years for us to figure out how to do an, something that looked like a native smart contract just with Bitcoin as it is. Yeah. And it's like the difference between that and the 12 you know years of other people who built other things yeah. is that those 12 years of people who built other things are now working on assumptions that are no longer valid. It's and true. this was always kind of a thing with Ethereum like when it came out where it's like a lot of the assumptions that they built Ethereum on originally 
are simply no longer valid. Like this idea that they have. Right. It was that you couldn't do these things on Bitcoin. But it, if it turns out you can. Even deeper than that, even this idea that like, uh, you know, mining consolidation was bad was a huge, a huge portion of like the Ethereum original movement was all about getting rid of ASICs. ASIC miners were bad. ASIC mining would have inevitably lead to the centralization of Bitcoin. And this, and you never, you, when is the last time you've heard anyone in Ethereum? Never. You will never hear them talk about this. No. Because now what we know is that the economics of Bitcoin mining are such that even though you have large players, the capital risk is so high that the turnover is so meaningful because it's so hard to be competitive for so long a time that that, is, that part of the ecosystem is actually decentralized enough. And not only that, with the, the energy compounding, which now we can do, you know, Bitcoin can compete for energy sources that have no other demand. Like these, Again, these were things that weren't part of the conversation. And I think other cryptocurrencies will always suffer from this, this inherent defect, which is that they were started by someone who had some value proposition in mind. They had some intention mm -hmm. for what they were doing. And the more we go further in time, you can just see that those intentions are degrading. And so, like, what does that give you in terms of the confidence of their project, right? The, the project then has to overcome the degradation of the reasons of why it was originally started. And that, to me, is what has always been seemed so unlikely. Like, that, that yeah. just seems exceedingly unlikely because it's sort of like the longer you go forward in time, the more people are incentivized to work on Bitcoin, the more they will come up with smart things. And the more these other people who built other more limited trade-offs, the less effective they become. You know, this is where I think you just see the long case for Bitcoin. But again, it, yeah, is it going to be a long time? Of course, yes. Yeah, it has yes, been. Yes, that is the worst thing. It's going to be a long time. Well, because we're not just going to hard fork upgrade to like shoehorn in some stuff. Um, in fact, if you look, right. one of the most interesting criticisms of Ethereum, in my opinion, is that its code complexity is just out of control. And and you hear this from Peter uh, Spigali, I, I think is how I say it. I can't remember how to say the guy's last name. He's the lead maintainer. Right, and he's identified this as basically the biggest risk facing Ethereum. That it the the code is so unbelievably complex and like sort of patchwork together that it's like a giant ball of wire, and like basically no one actually knows how it all works anymore. And every time that some issue comes up that they have to mitigate, they implement something that causes new issues that they then have to mitigate. And it's and and that is largely a consequence of literally almost a decade at this point of I guess you know seven years or so of of major upgrades, right? Like. Altering it a lot. I think you have to look at, and again, I don't take a as negativistic of a view on Ethereum. As no, like I mean, nor do I. I just do. Like, I don't yeah. think like there's the people who went and built Ethereum were like morally bad or corrupt. No, I, nor do I. I think they were yeah. like misguided on some of their assumptions. And I think that uh, to what you're talking about, it's like really you have to understand where that technology came from, and it came from people again who like broke away from Bitcoin with with certain ideas. And because they did that, they their what they achieve always has to be graded against their initial assumptions. Because essentially, they they'll never they can't escape their initial assumptions for building the thing. Because without the original assumptions, they would not have built the thing. <laughs> so right. it's a weird kind of circular argument uh, where, you know, uh, as you're pointing out, and look, I'm not a coder. I don't I don't actually know. I can't materially evaluate the the, the claim whether Ethereum has gotten more you know technically complex. I mean, it seems that way. But I can tell you that the reasons that they started Ethereum, like if you were to write them down on a piece of paper, you could certainly cross a bunch of them out and say that these are no longer relevant. <laughs> and you know the the difference is that while Ethereum is the total the product of those ideas, Bitcoin is not. Bitcoin is a decentralized system that can, you know, new people can come in with different ideas and it can sort of move the culture a little bit. But there's never the the 
the the base kind of concept of like you know there being the monetary policy, there being certain rules. We're never going to upgrade to change these rules like in a in a majoritarian type way. Like because these things are there, like the you know kind of Bitcoin has a better, I think, sounder like sort of moral footprint or just like not moral footprint, but like just. Uh, Intellectual footprint, like the the topical area is just a lot more known, right? There's knowns in Bitcoin. There's no knowns. There's no unknowns. We're working to reduce that, uh, but it's much more cohesive than sort of these other things because these other things were just purely the product of certain people who are still involved in them who had certain assumptions, right? Yep. Um, so, Pete, uh, before we wrap, you are the editor of Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin 2024 is scheduled to be, I believe, in mid July or so of next summer. In Nashville, so uh, I guess we could say bringing it home, right? Get on your boots. Inc. is in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, get on your exactly. And you got Bitcoin Park there in Nashville, which I'm actually a member of. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What can you tell us about it? Is it? I'm sure that's not your day to day job. You got a whole team that runs the conference, but is it going to be awesome in Nashville? It's been in Miami the past three years. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think that um, Bitcoin conferences are always awesome, no matter how long, how big or small they are. Obviously, the Bitcoin conference is a unique spectacle just for how big it is. And I think that, you know. You had a great panel last year that you moderated with Shinobi, Matt Carallo, and Eric Wall and Udi Wertheimer and that sort of Ordinal's Taproot Wizards debate, which was by far my favorite panel, although I will say the two presidential candidate appearances were also excellent. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I think as I think it just as someone who tried to architect it, it just immediately went on the rails, and then it was just like <laughs> watching a car sort of tumble down the hill. But uh, yeah, look, I think it's going to be a great time. It was a great spectacle for sure. I'm of the belief that, look, Bitcoin conferences should just strip, all, strip down. We just need rooms with white walls where we can all yell at each other. It's a bear market. It's time for us to just have at it. There's no this pretense that there's going to be normal people there. <laughs> You know, I, if it was up to me, I would get rid of all that, right? It's just like white padded rooms where like there's some boxing gloves where people can just go at it. But yeah, look, I think it's 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 good, right? Like Bitcoin is recentering. We're having different, more meaningful debates. I think some of those things have to be sussed out a little bit more. We have to do a better job of kind of explaining uh, what's going on. But, you know, I think that's... You know, people who are used to be crypto agnostic coming to Bitcoin is like very positive. I think that, you know, hopefully we can channel their creative energy towards doing something useful for Bitcoin. Right. And we have to kind of define that for them, I think, in order to be helpful. Right. That's what I say to that kind of people who have been here. It's like we have to also channel this energy that's coming in because, you know, it isn't really going to be the dumb idea that you had for Ethereum is going to like work suddenly because it's on Bitcoin. It might still be a very dumb idea. <laughs> like, and there might be a new reasons why it's a dumb idea, right? So, but you're going to have to deal with these people who are coming, I think, and then sort of educate them up, right? Like, how, okay, what are we trying to work on in Bitcoin? Like, what is valuable to us? Like, where do we need to, you know, as you were talking with the roll-ups, like, where do we need attention? Where can you be valuable? I, and I do think there, you know, there is a risk there, right? There could be, you know, more tension around that conference and it could be a time where people do feel like the network is being overwhelmed, uh, with, you know, things that aren't super valuable. But again, uh, you know, Bitcoin is a permissionless technology. And I think uh, I go back to Ordinals and Casey, like what was his greatest contribution? He didn't ask for permission, right? He just set this thing off, whatever it is. Uh, best case scenario, he brings the NFT markets to Bitcoin. They're a long-term value add for the chain and all other NFT markets are destroyed. Worst case scenario, you know, he... Is a disgraced formal protocol guy who brought <laughs> years of shitcoining to Bitcoin and then has to go live in a monastery somewhere, you know, just uh, you know, away from the world. Uh, but look, look, I mean, we need people who are willing to go that far, you know. It's like I, I, I and this is what, again what I've always loved about 
uh, Casey and his proposal as just, you know, the, a work of like human creativity. Um, you know, Ordinals really is going for something. It, it has a lot at stake. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it play out. And I, we hope he joins us in Bitcoin 2024. Uh, I think he's been too quiet on the stage, to be honest. I think uh, could use a little bit more of his uh, insight. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be right in between the two uh, presidential uh, national nominating conventions for the two major parties as well. So it's going to be exciting. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I love Nashville. I went to college in Nashville. I went to Vanderbilt. So um, I always love going back to did Nashville. Did you really? I okay. did, yes. Yeah, Nashville is a fun city. I mean, look, if people haven't been, uh, a lot of character. Uh, yeah. You can go to the Johnny Cash Museum. You know, obviously tons of live country music. I think, look, uh, with the Bitcoin conference, it's like we got to it's got to be a party scene we're going to overwhelm broadway dude it's pretty big but i mean we're if we have if we have 20 or 30,000 bitcoiners going out every night and it's going to be a scene well and i think like part of this is like you know bringing the bitcoin conference on the road seeing more cities getting more cities involved i mean we really did see how you know miami did become involved in the bitcoin sector right luminously with suarez and these other things you know so i do think you know it's good to get the co- the conference out there you know we did the conference in europe this year we're looking at asia we're looking at the middle east uh, you know this is part of going forth and orange pilling the world you know pete rizzo uh editor at bitcoin magazine thank you so much for joining galaxy brains that's it for this week's episode of galaxy brains thanks to our guest pete rizzo from bitcoin magazine and bimnet abb from galaxy trading as always we'll catch you next week thanks for listening to galaxy brains the weekly podcast from galaxy research If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com slash research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.